Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and the final episode of our four-part specialist series, Expeditia. If you're playing this episode without having listened to the first three in the series, I'd strongly recommend you turn this off right now and go back and listen to those. This final episode came as a bit of a surprise to me. When Charlie got released from prison and finally arrived back in the UK, he woke up in the night and couldn't get back to sleep. Rather admirably, he made the decision to make one final recording. How was he feeling now? How had the experience changed him? And that, without any fancy frills, is episode four. But before we kick this finale off, I just wanted to make a cheeky request for some feedback on this series. Personally, I've absolutely adored this process. Orla, who produces the podcast, did the bulk of the work, going through Charlie's recordings, ordering them, cutting them down, and helping me prepare for the long interview. But the result is not our standard adventure podcast. I'll continue doing those normal features because I love them too, and at the core of it, that's what this is. But this series has been something really different. Projects and series like this take a lot more work than the normal podcast, and I actually listened back to all of them to quality control them and got totally lost and immersed in the story, which I hope says a lot. I also owe Charlie a massive thank you. Without his commitment to the process, we wouldn't have anywhere near as interesting a final story. To keep a recorder going in your pocket in Russia during a police interrogation is pretty committed. So ultimately my point is, if you have any feedback, good, bad, whatever you want to say, please email me personally at matt at theadventurepodcast.co.uk with some feedback, or you can get in touch on Instagram at theadventurepodcast. If you are enjoying this style of podcast, then I'm up for uncovering some stories before the trips happen and making more series like this in the future. Okay, I hope you enjoy this final episode of the series, and thanks very much for listening. And when you got home, you know, I didn't ask you to do this because I didn't feel like I could or should. But you recorded something when you got home. Yeah. I think I left it two or three days, I can't remember. And it was it was just on my to-do list, but I didn't have time and wanted to put it off, I think. And God knows what I said. Well, that was my question is, do you remember and could you bear to listen to it? Um... I'm sure I could bear to listen to it. Um, I know for a fact that we don't have the studio time now, so you can't force me to listen to it and watch me do so. But I recorded it. I was like, I didn't sleep very well the first couple of nights back. Probably time difference as much as anything else. You know, I was at one point ten hours ahead of UK time, um, and so I recorded it. At, I think four thirty in the morning for oh, I don't know, like an hour. It was a what? It was a long old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm sure I could bear to listen to it. And, and, and I'm sure I will at some point. It would be interesting to do so. But what I said, I have no idea. Yeah, it's going to form most of the final episode just to break that to you now. <laughs> oh, dear. Right. Well, sorry to everyone and anyone that was no, no. disgusted or offended by anything I said. <laughs> oh, yeah, the, yeah, that lot. Don't read the comments. Charles, uh, man of Kulga uh, interview, yes or no? Well, it's uh, a month since my last recording. And I'm home, and quite a lot has happened. And due to the nature of what happened, I have been entirely unable to make any recordings in the last month. Um, the last time I recorded, I was just about to go into the office of the FSB in Tixi, um, having heard that they were sort of interested in my in me and what I was doing and why I was there and I thought it'd be wise to get ahead of it and go and you know see them show that I'm nothing nothing to hide um I went to see them and was there for I think about two and a half hours and in the end it was absolutely fine there was very little to there's no problem they were just I think curious about me but exhibited that curiosity in quite a sort of <laughs> aggressive interrogative manner um so I was done with them and very relieved about the whole thing and the following day in Tixie I was in the um apartment I'd rented and there was suddenly a knock at the door and it was the police not the FSB, but the regular police. And I didn't really know what they wanted, um, but they said, come with us. And I said, why? And they said, um, registration. And I thought, well, registration, that's, that's all right. You know, I can, I can, I can register. And I, can, I can hardly sort of refuse to register because that seems like a sort of a straightforward thing that they might ask a tourist to do. And being... Um, uncooperative is is never ideal um so down we went to the station and after a while they slowly conceded that uh after having asked a few questions about me they they conceded that it was going to be difficult to continue without a translator so they fetched a school teacher uh english teacher uh olga who spoke decent english and over the following few hours slowly it became clear that I was being lined up for another um, fine like in Oostkwiga and the sort of grounds were being prepared to accuse me once again of conducting illicit journalism within Russia um, they asked me who I'd met in Tixi who I'd spoken to and I saw um it would be unwise to say that I hadn't met people who I'd been seen in public with. Um, so I, I said, oh, I've met this guy called and I had lunch with him. Uh, I met him on the road while I was hiking and, um, and he helped me find somewhere to stay. And they said, anyone else? And I said, well, I also met this guy called who... Um, 
asked to show me around Tixie, so I met him last night and he briefly showed me around. And and that's it. And then they spoke amongst themselves for a while and then they started asking me questions, who are these people? And they clearly didn't know either of um, these two guys. And then there was a slightly awkward pause for 10 minutes or 20 minutes where the the officer writing up his notes wouldn't answer any questions, wouldn't even address himself to me, although I, you know, I had my questions translated to him. He, just, he was completely silent, and eventually he said, um, these witnesses say that you spoke about the war in Ukraine and that you were asking inappropriate questions. And I said, but you, you don't know who they are and you haven't met them and you haven't left the room and you haven't made any phone calls, so how do you know what they said? And then the man went silent again. Um, anyway, so to cut that story a little shorter, um, about two hours later, so perhaps five hours after I was taken to the police station, I was taken to the court, having denied all accusations and refused to sign papers saying that I was a journalist. I was taken to court and they. this was now at um, about 9.30 at night or perhaps a bit later and they had dragged in a judge who was the spitting image of Harry Redknapp and this man came in in his black robed gown and the translator Olga was still there but increasingly furious because she was meant to be preparing some things with her daughter for a um, sort of cake sale the next day to raise money for someone local who had blood cancer. And she had been dragged into the police station for as many hours as I had. And during the court case, which was pretty brief, um, she became increasingly sort of surly, I suppose, and translated things less and less fully. Um, I would speak for a, a, a paragraph and she would say a curt sentence. The judge would talk for a minute and she would give me 15 seconds of translation. Um, I wasn't offered a, um, a lawyer. Um... I didn't understand much of what was said and what went on, but after um, a trial and a deliberation in total of about 45 minutes, I suppose, um, and after having denied quite stridently everything that was put to me, um, I was uh, found guilty and the sentence was handed down that I would have a fine of 5,000 rubles, or about 50 pounds, so that's no problem, and that I would be banned from Russia for five years, and that I would have to leave Russia very quickly. And although none of that's ideal, it wasn't the end of the world, so I, you know, I I didn't make a massive fuss. I thought, right, well, I'll, I'll pay 50 pound fine, I will get down to Yakutsk, I will find a flight, and I'll go home. Um, so... I signed the papers, I went back to the flat where I was staying and then um, about half an hour later there was a knock at the door and there were police there and they said, right, pack everything, pack all your things. Um, You've got your flight to to Yakuts tomorrow, so pack all your things and you're staying in the police station tonight. And sure enough, in 15 minutes later... I'd hastily packed up all my stuff, which was in a bit of a sort of state, you know, whatever was lying out and about in in the flat. I just hid anything that could be sort of further incriminating, I suppose. Um, Packed it all up and 
suddenly found myself being fingerprinted in the old-fashioned way with ink rollers and then put in a sort of small um, concrete windowless cell, which wasn't much fun, but it was by the time they actually got me into the cell, it was about 1.30 at night and I was exhausted, so I went to sleep, woke up the next morning and was um, taken to some office by the... um, the marshals, essentially, the um, FSSP. I think they're sort of the bailiff's men, the equivalent of US marshals is how they describe themselves. Um, I was in their custody all day, and then I was taken to the airport, checked in with a um, an escort, a marshal, who was a real quite unpleasant guy, a bit of a bully. Um, you know, he... Uh, he kept sort of prodding and nudging me and saying, look, stand here, do this, do that. And, you know, nothing was quite right for him. Anyway, we flew down to Yakutsk, where I'd sort of thought, you know, they've got me down to Yakutsk, I'll book a flight and I'll go home, and that's that. And on arrival at the airport in Yakutsk, there was another marshal waiting to meet us, and um, I was uh, a couple of... um, friends, local friends from Yakutsk had come to meet me at the airport also not really understanding what was happening Um, and so I had to entrust a bunch of my kit everything except a sort of a small bag with valuables and and some clothing I gave gave all my kit to to my friends and suddenly found myself in a minibus on my way to a detention centre and it was at this point that um, the the Yakutsk based marshal who spoke decent English um, he confirmed, you you are under arrest. You do know that, don't you? And I didn't really know that, because although I'd been to court and been found guilty, I'd been found guilty of another administrative offence, not a criminal charge. Um, anyway, he said, yeah, you're, you're going to the detention centre for foreigners and you'll stay there until your deportation. And half an hour later, I was being processed into what they call a detention centre for foreigners, but what in every other sense is a prison. And all my items were checked into a locker. My shoelaces were removed so I couldn't hang myself or strangle any other inmates. Um, And carrying just a few items of clothing, I was marched into this cell. The windows were barred. There were four rickety um, metal bunk beds and two other inmates and suddenly the door was being slammed shut behind me and um, the little hatch opened uh, the hatch through which food is normally passed hatch in the door and the face appeared saying okay so this is where you stay now and if you you know if you have any problems knock on the door and I said you know I'm, I'm not meant to be here I'm just a tourists I I haven't done anything wrong and they being mildly acquainted with my case I suppose said oh don't worry it's all just political which wasn't that reassuring because I mean it's easy to say that if you're on the other side of the door but I was the one locked up in the room anyway to probably cut things a little bit shorter I don't want to wrap it on forever um I was there for the last four weeks uh it was a long, frightening, frustrating and incredibly boring experience. 
the first two weeks, I was sharing the cell with a Ukrainian and a Kyrgyz man. Um, the Ukrainian had committed some sort of criminal offence and had been in a prison for the last two years and was now seeing out a six-month sentence in the, um, in the detention centre, which from now on I just call the prison, um, before being deported to Ukraine. The Kyrgyz man had been caught working without a work permit and so he was um, going to be deported to Kyrgyzstan. And the, the prison was 24 hours a day in the same room, um, with the exception of three times a week on Monday, Wednesday and Friday, when we were taken into the corridor and under the supervision of a guard given access to our phones for 15 minutes. So 15 minutes, three times a week, each a week, I had collectively 45 minutes in a panicked hurry to find out what's happening with my case, to make contact with um, loved ones and to try and get myself out of there. Um, it took a few days to arrange a lawyer or when I say arrange everything was done on my behalf at, at the point I was put into the prison from then onwards I had to just um, allow um, friends and family to do what they could for me and basically sit back and try to wait patiently but a, a judge was procured who arranged for an appeal and the plan was to appeal not the, um, the, the sort of the conviction that had been levelled at me of conducting journalism, but to appeal the decision to, um, quote-unquote, forcibly deport me, as opposed to me self-deporting, i.e. Um, let me just book a flight and go home myself, as opposed to waiting for the state to book a flight at their convenience to a country from which there are no flights from Russia, to which there are no flights from Russia because of um, a war going on and a huge mass of sanctions. Um, it too, took two weeks for my appeal to be heard by a judge who looked over the huge stack of information put before him, the um, witness testimonies from people both inside and outside of Russia, the sort of character statements, I should say, um, and we didn't press the point that I was never even given a judge for my initial trial and that um, <laughs> I was clearly only there because some kangaroo court with um, some sort of cowboy judge in a, in a remote um, coastal town uh, had, had chosen to make an example of me or try to make themselves seem big or successful or something like that. Um, the judge deliberated for about two minutes and um, said, uh, your appeal is rejected, the reason being that your offences are so grave. And then he cited the fact that another accusation that I hadn't even been aware of was that I had apparently been photographing sensitive military sites in Tixi. Um, so I was taken back to the cell. Um, so that was after two weeks. The first two weeks, I didn't set foot outdoors I was just stuck in the cell in the prison round the clock every day um, so the trip to the court I suppose at least got me outdoors for a couple of minutes at either end of the drive 
um, the drive, I was handcuffed and then so my handcuffs, my hands were handcuffed together and then my handcuffed hands were handcuffed to a police officer who had a taser. Another police officer with another taser flanked me on the other side. Um, so back to the prison where uh, I had to wait um, another two weeks until finally through quite a lot of hard work and diplomacy from people to whom I will be forever indebted at both the UK embassy and at home. Um, I was included on a deportation run where three other prisoners and myself were deported. The others were all deported at the Russian state's expense, but um, the way we managed to get me onto that deportation was um, by booking my own ticket to coincide with the other deportation via Moscow. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The next chance that I would have had to be deported was mid-July, so a further two months on, and had that not worked out, then it would have been the autumn, so I would have spent, I suppose, uh, five-plus months in that cell the second two weeks in the prison I was in a cell by myself um, which I I frankly preferred Um, by that point um, friends had managed to bring me a handful of English language books so I spent all day reading and pacing lengths of my small cell I could get nine shuffling paces corner to corner so I would pace hundreds of lengths each day you know sort of every day from 500 to a thousand lengths of the cell and do lots of sit-ups and push-ups and whatever I could to basically pass the time and try and keep myself relatively fit. Um, <laughs> the last day I was in there, I did 700 sit-ups, which was sort of absurd. I think the last four days collectively was 2,000 sit-ups. Um, anyway, I was I was finally deported. I was taken to the plane in handcuffs um, in Moscow airport. I was suddenly... Um, put through another very thorough and gruelling baggage search and security process um, during which um, my journal that had quite a lot to say about the state of Russia was um, read through and my camera was scrutinised again. The police had already hacked my phone um, in Yakutsk and looked through everything as well as... um, the state ordering the local TV news channel to um, do a news bit about me. So I was dragged in front of a camera in handcuffs and questioned about my offences in Tixie um, in not the most sort of rigorously balanced journalistic manner and dragged on TV. The British Embassy later told me that I could potentially press for a human rights violation there because you're not allowed to, um, you know, drag on TV and and humiliate uh, foreign prisoners or any prisoners. Um, 
So that last baggage search in, in Moscow Airport went on for about an hour and a half, during which I became increasingly convinced I was going to miss my flight. Um, I was eventually escorted to the gate um, just minutes before takeoff. So it was very touch and go. Um, the flight, finally, those wheels taking off from the runway in Moscow was... Well, throughout this whole thing, this whole nightmare month, the, the, the nightmare I just couldn't seem to wake up from, I, I never knew what was coming next. I didn't know until a couple of days before I was going home that I was going home. I had hoped that my appeal would work and that I'd be free after that, but that didn't happen. On arrival, I thought I'd be there a night or two, and then I was told it'll be at least 10 days until the bailiffs send the documents through from Tixie. So I thought, right, 10 days, I can stay 10 days, I can stay 10 days. Then I got my appeal week, two months, okay, maximum two months, that's fine, then I can go. And by the time I was actually released, I had sort of come to think that I might be there for a really long amount of time, and I'd sort of given up hope. And the not knowing was the worst aspect. Um, Each day, I... I had no idea if that would be my last day or if I was only 5% of the way through my time in that place. And that was very frustrating and frightening. And I, all the while, had this this terrible fear that they would suddenly start, you know, use me to make a, a, an example or as a bargaining chip internationally in some sense. Um, it's not like the British and Russian governments are on at all friendly terms at the moment. And some stupid, clumsy, unsuspecting tourist who wandered into a, you know, into a, a, a military area or a former military area seemed like a, you know, <laughs> perfect bargaining chip. Um, the, I think one thing that feared me, scared me, sorry, was on arrival in, in the prison in Yakutsk. The, the following day, I was handcuffed and taken into a cell where the police had laid out every item that I had with me. So my camera, my GoPro, um, I'd hidden the voice recorder. but uh, and, and my journal, I'd slipped in the back of my shirt and taken into the cell with me where I kind of hid it in plain sight. Um, you're not allowed metal items in the cell. Um, and there's a search every morning. They get a bunch of guards come in with metal detectors and basically turn the entire cell upside down and check the bars of the cage, check inside the cupboards, check inside the cistern of the toilet and scan our bodies with metal detectors. Um, but the journal seemed innocuous enough. But everything that had been in my locker was laid out on the table in this room where a police officer asked me about it all. And he clearly thought that my camera was a professional camera and that my GoPro was a spy camera. And I had a GPS device, which to Russian people looked very suspect because GPS is almost synonymous with spies. Spion, spion, international spion was two words that one of the guards used in reference to me, international spy. Um, But among all the stuff laid out on that table was a um, plug adapter from um, Russian to British sockets in the the back of which I'd unscrewed and inside wrapped up in white paper to make it less visible I'd secreted um some micro SD cards with all my recordings on from the voice recorder including that recording where I was taken into a police station in Ustkwiga 
And just because my recorder was on me when the police came to the door and I'd slipped it in my pocket, I had a recording of being um, sort of interviewed, questioned by the police, particularly after they had taken my phone and turned it off to make sure I couldn't record anything. Um, but there was also just lots and lots I said in those recordings that was um, far from glowing about Russia and the, the war in Ukraine, which all along I had been, to police at least, claiming to know little about, to be apolitical, to have no interest in. And so this whole time I was in that cell thinking, you know, when are they going to step this up? When is this going to become a criminal investigation? When are they going to formally accuse me of being a journalist intent on spreading lies about the the Spezialnaya Operatia in Ukraine? Um, the, the sentence for spreading misinformation about um, the military in Russia was put up to the maximum possible sentence was um, increased to 15 years in March. So there was suddenly a very real possibility that I might end up spending a chunk, <laughs> a wedge of my adult life in a Russian prison. So when finally I got on that plane, that um, Emirates flight via Dubai back home, of course, no direct flights, um, the plane took off and throughout this whole ordeal throughout the whole month throughout the hurried calls with my girlfriend um, and the minutes immediately following each of those especially on Friday before the long weekend with 72 hours until the next phone call I, I never once cried I felt very close to it a number of times I was overwhelmed with the, you know despair at times helplessness anger depression but I never let it fully collapse me into a state of blubbering tears, um, which is something that I can get into a lot more easily these days. I think since my dad died, I, I find it a lot easier to get sort of weepy. I'm a lot more prone to, to breaking down in that respect. Um, the, the day I got news that my grandmother had just died, um, which was about three weeks into my time in the prison, um, I heaved a couple of sort of gentle sobs, but choked it down and swallowed it. Um, but on that plane, the plane took off, and suddenly, before I knew what was happening, I was just in floods of tears, and I had to stumble half-blind down the aisle before the seatbelt thing had been turned off, shut myself in the loo, sit down, and just bawl. Um, and I think that was just the final release, the build-up of everything that had come before. Um, so I, I got home. I've been back uh, a full day now. Um, it's currently uh, about 4.30 in the morning. I, I can't um, get back to sleep. There's just a lot, I suppose, uh, to, to process um, there's a lot for me to find out about what happened while I was inside. I don't just mean in the wider world, but I mean with my case. I was the last person to know about everything, really, because, you know, my my loved ones could be, you know, collaborating with the lawyer and with the UK embassy and sort of campaigning, doing what they could to get me out of there. And I would always be the last to know or don't know yet because, you know, there was so little time in which to impart information to me on my brief, hurried phone calls, which were very businesslike because there was always a lot to get through. Um, so, yeah, I'm now, 
and back home, I've been totally flat out since I got back with you know, three months of unanswered emails to catch up on and life and work to arrange. And um, I, I've yet to sort of broach social media and make my first post in three months since leaving uh, Yakutsk. Um, obviously, social media was blocked in Russia as soon as the war began. Yeah, I just don't really know what to think about it all yet. I'm, I've, I've definitely still got a lot of anger. I mean, that was the worst thing in the cell, was just anger and boredom. And I got bored with how angry I was, and I got angry about how bored I was. Um, certainly until the books came along, I had just nothing to do. It was desperately boring. I would just stare at the ceiling round the clock. Um, and then I... Over the following sort of you know, three weeks, I read 7,000 pages of books. Um, I think about 11 books were delivered to me, um, one of which I read twice. I read a thousand word book twice in a, in a two week period, which is sort of mad. Also, it was a fantasy adventure book, not the sort of thing I, I um, tend, to, tend to read. Um, and I think it's. Time management feels really difficult now. You know, I've, I've had so little to to manage, to control, to marshal in my life for um, a month, and then very relatively little for two months before that, where my my day to day was, you know, wake up, avoid freezing to death during breakfast, put on boots and start walking. At the end of the day, put up a tent and go back to sleep. Um, so I do feel a little kind of like a deer in the headlights at the moment. Um, and it'll, I'm sure, take time to settle back in. And with regard to Russia and my five-year ban, I am not at all fussed by that. You know, I wouldn't go back if I was paid to. Um, or certainly not before uh, the the... You know, the world sees a regime change and or Vladimir Putin strung up from a lamppost. Um, I don't think I will ever feel safe going back to Russia again. But anyway, that's me wittering on half asleep at half past four in the morning for half an hour. But, yeah, a, a fairly horrific um, anxiety-inducing end Kafka-esque end to what was otherwise a, a fascinating and, and sort of wonderful adventure up in the Arctic What do you do with it now? I hate the what next question. It bores me. But what what do you do now with this? Um, I'm going to start scribbling and write a book about this journey, um, which I hope can be or should be more than just a travel log. You know, I think I think there's insight and issues that I had some exposure to that hopefully can be 
valid as well as just interesting, I hope. But that does sound like delusions of grandeur. Um, I will... In fact, I've given one already presentation about, you know, slideshow, which I hastily put together on the train on the way to the venue. And there are a couple of Ukrainians in the audience. That was really interesting. Um, but it was a primary school age audience. So trying to pitch some of these ideas when you haven't even yet really formed them to uh, sort of, you know, eight to 12 year olds or whatever was interesting. Um but yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've got a story. It's my story, but hopefully it's not all about me. And I will tell it as best I can. And regardless of mine or your view on reality or politics, if there was regime change and it felt safe to do so, would you go back? Absolutely. But that would have to be a change of politics and ideology as opposed to just Putin snuffs it or someone snuffs him and, you know, Medvedev takes over or, or whoever. Um, I, I, I'm only banned for five years, but, um, you know, I, I've not hidden my feelings about Russia since I've got back and it would be foolish for me to go back while anything like the current status quo stands. Yeah. And as you might know... I always end every podcast with two questions. I knew you were going to do this, and I planned to come up with some sort of answer, and, and I haven't. Your face just then was amazing. Oh, it was genuine fear. <laughs> but it feels I even listened to a crap is... podcast on my cycle right here. I could have thought of something <laughs> to say to you. Was it on mine? <laughs> um, no. <laughs> um, yeah. Even though this is a series, I think it's as relevant as it ever is. What scares you? Russia, now. Um, boredom. How many answers am I allowed? Age. Many as you like. Getting a hairy back. Um, dangerous wildlife. Heights. Although I, I love climbing, but I think it's foolish not to be afraid of heights. <laughs> yeah, plenty of things scare me. I'm, I'm by no means fearless. Um, there's lots. Um, I think boredom is probably the admittedly slightly wanky but headline answer to that age was an interesting one well it's it's not necessarily age i'm happy to get older but i've already got pretty dodgy knees and shoulders and, and it's i suppose maybe not age but um decrepitude is that one of those words you're no longer allowed to say i'm not really sure <laughs> <laughs> if it is all of will take it out <laughs> um yeah, I, I, I fear not being able to move and hike and climb and swim and do the things that I like doing. What brings you hope? That I'm really struggling. I think I'm quite a hopeful person. Um, I draw hope from, I suppose, art and literature and natural beauty and many of the same things that I guess many people do. That's quite a cop-out as an answer, though, isn't it? Most people say kids. Kids. Oh, I haven't got those. Um, and the ones I see often don't give me any hope. <laughs> Little shitbags, aren't they? <laughs> In a literal sense, when they're young, that is. Oh, definitely, yeah. definitely the case. Yeah. Good luck with yours. Thanks. Um, yeah, I, I don't... I mean, well, to look at it from that perspective, the next generation, the fact that younger people in this country at least seem to be a lot more, or at least the ones that you hear and see, hear about and see, seem to be a lot more engaged and worried about and active with 
problems that people a generation above us are all too often happy to ignore, that hopefully gives you hope. But that is hope in the face of a lot of looming, impending disaster with regards to climate and social issues and all sorts. So, you know, how's about this for a parting sentence? Hope is always tempered. <laughs> You're such a cynic. <laughs> well, I won't deny that. I, I am more cynical than I would like to be. You said it, not me. I'm just repeating it. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. Thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Expeditia, a four-part specialist series with Charlie Walker. For more information on the podcast in general, visit the Adventure Podcast at UK. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and is produced and edited by Orla Omori, who needs a particularly special thank you for this series, where she did a huge amount of work. If you want to get in touch, as I've mentioned throughout this series in the intros and outros, you can do so at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk or matt at theadventurepodcast.co.uk and I'll pick those up personally. You can also get in touch on Instagram at theadventurepodcast. And finally, if you've enjoyed this series, please do leave us a specific review commenting on the series in general. It really helps other people to find the podcast and navigate what it is they want to listen to. And it helps with SEO and iTunes and Spotify, gets us up the list and helps other people to access this podcast. So thank you in advance.